welcome you. Good morning. Um, Russ is preaching today, so it's like I really was just sort of preserving the moment. Um, and I just want to thank you that something about this note as you get those. Um, I made a switch this morning, but then I didn't make the switch on my notes because I'd already printed it and felt comfortable with it. We're actually going to do number one, number two, number three, number four, and then we're going to skip to do number nine, and then we'll come back and do that middle section. So just as I get completely off track, before I get off track, you guys understand that. That would be probably be helpful for you to understand where we're going. Um, let's see, I feel like I'm in the jungle here. So maybe this is what Damon's going to feel like in Uganda, you know, kind of teaching by a monkey in there somewhere, and it's casting this odd shadow, too, but that's okay. I'm sure it looks really nice from your perspective. Um, all right. Um, just wanted to quickly go over. This is our third week to go over the 19th century in church history. Uh, today, we're going to talk about, as you can see on your notes, the church and society in England. Um, and for those of you that haven't been with us the last two weeks, we kind of focused on uh, a historical study of the Second Great Awakening, primarily in America. And last week we spent a deal of time about talking about uh, Charles Finney and his legacy to the evangelical church. Um, and just as a quick review, I think we concluded saying he had been called, he has been called the father of modern pragmatism since he emphasized the use of means to lead his hearers to choose Christ. Uh, he used specific methods um, to emotionally engage the sinner to make a decision for Christ. And we talked about how he led the church in America as an institution to change culture in the idea of Christian America in 19th century uh, America. He emphasized in his uh, attempts to reform society the abolition of slavery, the co-education of women, and temperance. Then modern-day critics of Finney, as we noted last week, believe that his emphasis on social change appeared to be equal with his preaching the gospel and other practices of godly disciplines. Um, and Finney influenced many to start up societies and to advocate certain social issues that were in need of Christian reform and morality. So that's kind of the backdrop of America and where we've been so far. Uh, today we're going to shift and take a boat ride across the Atlantic Ocean to England and talk about several movements and societies that were formed to assist with the social ills that had occurred uh, during this kind of the middle of the Industrial Revolution. So we're going to talk about how the church impacted the culture in England. First, we'll talk about the Sunday School Movement, which didn't happen in the Book of Acts. Some of y'all might be surprised to find out. Um, but this is the time of the Sunday School Movement. So my whole existence up here is from this time period. Um, Next, we'll talk about, this is number nine on your uh, study guide, the, found, the founding of the YMCA. Um, and then I must, I really, when I wrote this outline earlier this week, wanted to spend some time talking about the establishment and the founding of the Salvation Army, but I ran out of, I just don't have enough, we don't have enough time today. And then Pastor Dan took about five of my minutes, so we definitely won't have time to get to that. So the last thing we'll talk about is the Christians in England and the fight for the abolition of slavery. We'll, we'll spend a good deal of time on um, William Wilberforce, and we get to do what I love to do most, which is more biographical um, analysis of history, and we'll get to talk a lot about uh, William Wilberforce, who is a, a challenge to all of us, I believe. 
Uh, so let's uh, turn in your Bibles. I think it's apropos that we talk about what it. What are we supposed to be doing as Christians? What do we? Um, we're not supposed to just be hearers of the word, but doers. And James one instructs us to do just that. So let's read that. So turn your Bibles to the book of James, chapter one. We'll read verse twenty-two to the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray. James writes, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for this day, Lord. We thank you that this day is a gift from you, Lord. We get to be in your house today, Lord. We get to worship you corporately as believers, Lord. That is a an amazing opportunity that we have, Lord. And, and Lord, I pray as we consider the history of your church, Lord, as we see the works that you're doing um, to change lives and to change culture, Lord, um, that we would um, be greater worshipers of who you are. And Lord, as we even look at um, movements that were founded by great men um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the direction of your word, Lord, I pray that we would not exalt them, Lord, but we would exalt you and the work that you did in their lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us be um, doers of your word, Lord. May we come to the scriptures, Lord, and that we might change, that we might impact others through that. Lord, help us be more evangelistic. Help us be more sensitive to the needs of others, Lord. I pray that we would do that, Lord, so that the gospel would be proclaimed and that we uh, might share in the glory of you, Lord, and that you might get all the praise. Lord, we praise you for this time. pray that you would just bless it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. All right, I gave you another list, so that you guys have been here the last couple of weeks. I keep giving you lists, and I love lists, so here we go. Be ready to work. Uh, the first thing, let's talk about, this is the, we're, as, as I've said, we're studying the, ninth, the church in the 19th century. We're going to focus on England today. So the end of the 1700s and the early 1800s was the time of the Industrial Revolution. And really the 19th century is kind of the second generation of people involved in the Industrial Revolution. I keep wanting to say revelation, the revolution. And in, this is primarily in the Western world, and this resulted in many changes in society. And I've got eight points for you, A through H. So here we go. And I have actually have long points, but I actually gave you the shortened points today so you could have some agreement with me. Number one was the increased efficiency of farmers in the... Industrial Revolution, a farmer, prior to the Industrial Revolution, a farmer was able to harvest about two acres of crops a day. And afterwards, or during the uh, Revolution, because of the use of, and I didn't study this, it wasn't that important, the use of the McCormick Reaper, he was able to um, harvest 10 acres a day. So a lot more uh, ability to harvest, which in turn meant that he could produce food and crops for more than just him in his family. Um, so that being the case, there's a new food industry to some degree. Uh, B, 
increased work in cities. Machines made the textile industry huge in England's cities. So there's less work, technically, in the country, more work in the city. So the center of life, this is C for you, the center of life was in the cities, where it had been previously more in the pastoral settings of the smaller towns and things like that. Now it's in the cities. Uh, four, family lives were changed. as at least most fathers were working outside the home. So previous to this, a lot of the fathers were working within their farm or at home or in an, a given area, but now they're working outside the home. And as we progress through the Industrial Revolu Revolution, the not only are fathers working outside the home, but women and wives are working outside the home, and children are working outside the home too. So that obviously makes for a major change in family dynamic. Uh, e, uh, the location of the home. Instead of being in the country, it was in the city, and is oftentimes in a, for the working class especially, in a very poor condition, oftentimes a very slum-like uh, condition. So it's just kind of painting a picture of where there might be ministry needs in the industrial England. Uh, the Church of England, which is the established Church of England, this is your F, uh, was slow to recognize this change. So remember the Church of England is the National Church of England. Um, it broke away in the 1500s from the Roman Catholic Church uh, because of Henry VIII not being able to get a divorce from his wife, uh, one of his wives, or several wives he ended up having. So they broke away from the church and... Um, so it's, it's its own separate entity. And during the time of Queen Elizabeth, about 50 years later, they established the Via Medea. You guys remember that? It's the middle way. It's where the Church of England was not going to be either really truly Protestant or truly Roman Catholic. It was going to be kind of a middle ground of those things. Um, so we had the Puritans, and we had people trying to purify the church. But the Church of England at this time was the primary church, similar to what we know it as today, You know, very liturgical, very uh, traditional, um, and a lot of uh, emphasis on the Book of Common Prayer for its worship. Um, but this is your seventh, or G. This, because of the slowness of the church to do this, there was success by Whitfield and Wesley in the 1700s in their preaching, which was done primarily outside of the church. Then Wesley's Methodism set up societies and Bible study groups for people to grow in Christ. So because of this, in the cities, this is your last point, there was great opportunity for Christian ministry. So, but we need to establish some Christian ministries before we can see the opportunities. Yes. C was the, the center of life was in the cities. I don't know if I... I might have gotten off somewhere else too. But. Uh -huh. So at this time in the Church of England, there was a substantial group of gospel-centered believers within the church called evangelicals. Um, that would be the first one on your number two. They're both evangelical Anglicans. 
That would be people like Thomas Scott, Charles Simeon, and who we'll spend a good deal of time on talking about William Wilberforce. Some of these actually left the church and were drawn to what we'll call dissenters. That's the second point right there. Um, so dissenting denominations like Baptists, Methodists, and Congregationalists. It's kind of outside the Church of England. There's these, these groups, these other denominations, which are commonly known as dissenters. So it's Baptists, Congregationalists, and Methodists. A noted dissenter was John Newton. He was a former slave trader who was converted and became a pastor. What did he write, please? Amazing Grace. Thank you. Good job. The horn liked it, too. Um, as the middle class and the working class grew in England, the dissenting churches saw significant growth. And it was these groups who formed the major societies to help address many blatant social ills of the day. Uh, besides the couple things we'll talk about, like the Sunday School Movement, the YMCA, and the abolition of slavery, they were inspired to do things like fight for legislation about child labor, establish labor unions to assist workers in having better working conditions, and also the reformation of the prisons of the nation. So let's talk first about the Sunday school movement. Okay, first, this is number three on your points. Under the leadership of a man by the name of Robert Rakes in Gloucester at the end of the 1700s, the Sunday school movement occurred. And it actually became common throughout the entire nation within about 50 years. Rakes was born in Gloucester, which is the hometown of George Whitfield. Um, he grew up during the Whitfie Whitfield's initial revivals in the, uh, along the English countryside. And it was, it, it was this evangelical emphasis that propelled Rakes to begin impacting culture. He used his means, he was a man of some substantial uh, financial means, to help establish better conditions for the prisoners of the community and then also to establish the Sunday School Movement. In 1780, Rakes began to see that children were running, running wildly throughout the streets of uh, his town, Gloucester, on Sundays primarily. Just thought that you could see that there was no structure to what they were doing. Um, but he was aware of other towns that had done, attempted to try to do uh, Sunday schools um, that had been established in nearby towns by some of John Wesley's converts. So Rakes used his own money and requested that the local parish priest assist him in the formation of a Sunday school in Gloucester. The emphasis of the school was to firstly educate children who were not receiving any formal education. It's because the children were working throughout the week. There was no established schools at that time. It was really probably not until the 1870s that Britain and America established a national school system. So... These kids who had been working all week saw Sunday as a time to, you know, do what kids do. Um, but they had worked every other day. The kids had worked every day of the week and were without any real education. And the church itself, as, it, as the emphasis has moved from more country life to city life and not transitioned well um, uh, because of the industrialization, and so many of the working class families did not even attend churches. Um, so there was really limited emphasis for church attendance by the working class. Um, for them, 
Sunday, I mean, these people are working in very difficult conditions, especially compared to what we would see today. Um, and they were working six days a week. Sunday was a, they were not working. Uh, so Sunday truly probably was a day of rest, an opportunity for the people to um, get their affairs in order for the rest of the week. Um, the emphasis of the day was on the production of goods and not on education. So children were working. They weren't being educated. But at the Sunday school, the children would learn to read, and their textbook was the Bible. So it gave great opportunity for, people to under, for children to understand what the Bible was and what it said. They were able, also required to recite catechisms found in the Anglican prayer book. And basic Christian teaching was the hallmark of these Sunday schools. And Rakes not only financially supported the school, but he took a keen interest in its success by measuring the children's progress and by rewarding them for their successes. So he was very engaged in seeing these children being involved in this Sunday school movement. And it was not just so they would be educated, but so they would learn what the scriptures had to say. Uh, a little bit later on, there was a Baptist layman by the name of William Fox in 1785. It's number four on the list. He helped expand the Sunday school movement. And he led the establishment first. This is not your blank. He established a group called the Society for the Establishment in Support of Sunday Schools. Because Fox, for years, had hoped he could find a way to provide for better education for the poor. And he saw Rakes' plan as the best way to do that. He brought in Anglican church members and evangelical dissenters. So he kind of, it's a common, he brings them together as a common emphasis to evangelize to these children. And he established what later became called the Sunday School Union. So just for date's sake, 1780, Robert Rakes establishes the Sunday School in Gloucester. And then this is probably 1785. That range by, let's see, let's see, where's my note here? Yes, by 1795, one quarter of a million children were involved in the Sunday schools in England. So this is one quarter of a million children who were not getting any training or any idea of what the scriptures had to say. Uh, they probably were not getting that at home, so they were getting it somewhere. So it seemed to be very successful. In 1788, this is, this is how the movement evolved, an article was written and distributed in one of the more popular periodicals of the day about the success of Rakes' Sunday schools. And then John Wesley himself printed an article about it in his monthly magazine called the Arminian Magazine. That's the name of it, okay? Uh, <laughs> I didn't name it. Um, and then within seven years of that time, one quarter of a million children were being taught in Sunday schools. Wesley envisioned that these Sunday schools were becoming nurseries for Christians since the emphasis was on teaching Christianity and the scriptures were being read. As more schools popped up, there was a great need for teachers, so it gave many believers the opportunities to be ministering to others. Um, and as the students graduated, some were given the opportunity to be teachers as well. So you kind of see this giving back here. Um, all your points here, but with Rakes and Fox, we see a zeal for Christ resulting in the outpouring of compassion to the underprivileged. Due to the emphasis that they placed on the education of the working class's children, child labor legislation was passed by Parliament in 1802 to limit the hours a child could work in a day. To limit it to 
12. So that was the limit, 12. So, so just think about where we were before this legislation. And that was still six days a week. So it's amazing. Uh, by the middle of the century, Sunday school attendance was nearly universal in England and also in America, even by, uh, especially by non-church attending families. And they saw the, these families saw this as an opportunity for their children to receive some sort of education. Um, the church embraced this role as it saw it as an opportunity to preach the gospel and the truths of scriptures to the youth of the day. By the 1870s, like I said earlier, government had taken the role of education during the week. So the emphasis of Sunday schools was not about learning to read, but about religious education. And Sunday schools continued to be influential through the middle of the 20th century. Um, I mean, I think that, I mean, I wasn't aware of this, but you know, there's a, he a heavy emphasis on the Sunday school movement up, and th up through the middle of the 20th century. Um, so that's the Sunday school movement. That's the first thing we're going to talk about that has impacted culture. But like I said, if you could turn over on your notes, let's go to number nine. Let's talk about the establishment of the YMCA. Okay, let's see. Now if I can find my notes. Okay. The YMCA, which is the Young Men's Christian Association, was, it's number nine, was established in 1844 in London by a man by the name of George Williams, who was an evangelical who had migrated to London as a sales assistant in a draper's shop. This is kind of the precursor to the modern-day department store. Um, in London at this time, there was awful living conditions for the young workers that had migrated to the city and who were in the city and grew up in the city as well. Uh, when they had left their workplace, there was really not much for them to do aside from the great temptations in the area's taverns and brothels. Um, and George Williams and several of his friends saw this as a great need they gathered together in prayer, and they um, founded the YMCA. Uh, they saw that the gathering together for, the, for Bible study and prayer was a good way to commune and live together in YMCA buildings, which was much better than being on the streets um, or in the, the um, buildings provided by the uh, workplace. He founded his first YMCA in London with the purpose of improving, with the improving of the spiritual condition of young men, this is what the founding says, of young men engaged in the drapery, embroidery, and other businesses. So there's kind of an emphasis here, but those are probably the most dominant trades at the time, aside from like coal industry and stuff like that, which was giving power to the, um, giving power to the machines that they were operating. Um, soon after that, the YWCA um, began as well. And in 1853, the, there's actually the first YMCA in America for African Americans was established. Um, the high point of the YMCA's influence was probably between the 1870s and the 1930s. Um, and at that time, the YMCA would say that their goal was to promote evangelical Christianity in weekday and Sunday services while promoting good sportsmanship in athletic contests and gyms uh, and swimming pools. Late in the 1800s, the YMCA in the U.S. sent thousands of overseas missionary workers and war workers, and they would establish YMCA's in foreign lands. I mean, it's just a huge organization, and very much emphasizing Christianity in the in the uh, evangelism uh, to um, unbelievers. Um, during the late or the middle, I guess the 1860s, 1870s, D.L. Moody was on staff at the YMCA. 
Um, and he used the YMCA greatly in his revivals, primarily in Chicago. Uh, interestingly enough, George Williams, the founder of the YMCA, was knighted in 1894 by Queen Victoria. So there's a legacy there. We'll talk a little bit next week about the YMCA's role in foreign lands and foreign missions when we talk about uh, uh, the 19th century movement for missions. Um, there's a note here to talk about the Salvation Army, which we won't get to, so that's all right. Too bad. Uh, all right, that's the YMCA. Next, I want to talk about the um, abolition of slavery in the slave trade in England. This is why you don't print anything until you're really sure, and you realize that your kids have used all your paper for, for coloring. So, okay. All right, so the abolition of slavery. All right, this is important. Okay, this is, let me get on a soapbox here because I love biography. I love, uh, I love William Wilberforce and his role and what he did and his commitment to Christ and his commitment to change culture through Christ. So, excuse me if I get too excited here. Uh, the slave trade and slavery, uh, slave trade and slavery in imperial England was an integral part of its economy, its successes, its colonialism. Um, there wasn't tr slavery, per se, like in the United States, in England, but in the lands of Imperial England, primarily like the West Indies, there was, and there was colonies and establishments in Africa where slaves would be uh, taken captive and, and transported to other British um, interests. Um, but there was not a whole lot of opposition to the idea of slavery in the slave trade in England at the time. There were some that opposed the slave trade and the use of slave labor, labor, but felt that there was no turning back since it was so ingrained in the economy of the empire. Most politicians either ignored the inhumanity of the issue, either out of fear or because they were benefiting themselves from it. Um, John Newton personally knew the horrors of the industry, he was a slave, as a uh, captain of a slave ship. And after his conversion, he became a leader against it. Uh, there was another early leader for the abolition of slavery, and his name was T Thomas Clarkson. He kind of did all the research and gave all the details about what, how bad the slave trade and the use of slaves was. Clarkson was a dissenter. He championed the cause into the early 1800s. The main leader, however, was an evangelical evangelical Anglican politician who was radically changed by God in, eight, in 1784 by the name of William Wilberforce. Wilberforce, this is not a note, but you can add this, lived from 1759 to 1833. So Wilberforce in 1784 is dramatically converted. He grew up in a, a Christian home, but he wasn't a believer. And um, he actually, his parents were benefactors of George Whitfield. Um, so he would have heard the preaching of Whitfield growing up and been very much known, uh, known much about what the true faith is. Uh, but he was converted in 1784 at the uh, ministry of one of his good friends who had uh, provided a book for him to read, which changed his life forever. And Wilberforce, before this, was elected to Parliament at the age of 21. So at 21 years old, he is elected to Parliament in the, I don't know what house, so that's okay. Um, and he stays in Parliament for 50 years 
never once losing an election. Um, but when he first gets converted, he very serious in his conversion. I mean, it, it took him months to work out his salvation. He concluded that there is no way he could live a public life like he had been living, which was one that was full of carousing and socializing and things like that, and be a Christian. He didn't think he could do both those things. So he thought he needed to give up his public service. Um, he didn't, however. And he sought the counsel of John Newton to see if he should uh, remove himself from public service. And he, uh, Newton encouraged him not to, to. And he challenged him to say, this is the good that you could do if you stayed in um, public service. So he didn't leave. And he realized then that God Almighty, this is a quote from him, had put before him, before me, two great options. Number one, the abolition of the slave trade. He was probably at the consultation of Mr. Newton, probably felt convicted that he should be involved in the abolition of the slave trade. And the second thing he wanted to, 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 ref, to do was to reform manners, which he would say is public conduct or ethics. Um, he wanted those things to be rooted in the truth of Scripture. Um, and interesting enough, Interestingly enough, in the year of Wesley's death, he wrote to Wilberforce advising him not to give up the abolition of the slave trade. So he had support encouraging him to be that voice to help, the, help England abolish the slave trade. And this is what Wilberforce thought about the, this is, these are his words about the slave trade. He says, so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the, did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would never rest until I effected its abolition. So there's, there's a price to pay here to some degree for him. I mean, Parliament is, is probably full of people that are in Parliament because of the financial backing of the slave trade. Um, there's, there's great social pressure here, and this is not a popular stand. Um, Let's see. Wilberforce, with the help of Clarkson, so Clarkson's kind of this, you know, researcher. He gives him all the details, and Wilberforce is kind of like the uh, the voice of the abolition movement, especially in Parliament. Uh, so Wilberforce, with the help of Clarkson, was able to introduce legislation in 1789, but it was blocked by some clever legal work by their opposition. And the abolition was the their their the pathway to abolition was blocked by vested interests, parliamentary filibustering, entrenched bigotry, international politics, slave unrest, personal sickness, which Wilberforce had significant personal sickness and political fear. Um, just as one historian's note about why it failed and continued to fail, as you can see in the notes. Other bills introduced by Wilberforce were defeated in 1791. 1792, 1797, 1798, 99, 1804, and 1805. I mean, give up. Come on. Just give up. It's not going to happen. I mean, nobody cares about this issue in that sense. But each time, they were getting more and more positive feedback. Um, and then in 1807, I like how this writer puts
1807, Parliament passed the Slave Trade Act, which abolished the trading of slaves in the entire British Empire. This is what one, uh, one author said. It says, but the, but the morning of victory came in 1807. The moral cause and the political momentum for abolition had finally become irresistible. At one point, this is taken from the actual accounts, the House rose almost to a man and turned towards Wilberforce in a burst of parliamentary cheers. Suddenly above the roar of hear, hear, and quite out of the order, three hurrahs echoed and echoed while he sat, head bowed, tears streaming down his face. At 4 a.m., the, uh, the House divided. Yes vote of 283, no vote of 16, majority for the abolition by 267, and on March 25, 1807, the royal assent was declared. One of Wilberforce's friends wrote, Wilberforce, Wilberforce's attributes in the immediate interposition of providence. In that early morning hour, Wilberforce turned to his best friend and colleague, Henry Thornton, and said, Well, Henry, what shall we abolish next? So he's ready to do something. He's like, I'm not going to rest now that I've done all that. Um, and I went ahead and put in here as well the, uh, a popular uh, or one of, uh, a poet of the day and was a man by the name of William Cooper, C-O-W-P-E-R. Um, and he wrote a poem about Wilberforce at this time that says, Thy country, Wilberforce, with just disdain, hears thee by cruel men and impious called fanatic for thy zeal to loose thee enthralled from exile, public sale, and slavery's chain. Friend of the poor, the wronged, the fettered, galled. Fear not, lest labor such as thine be in vain. So just... Uh, crediting Wilberforce for his perseverance in helping to abolish uh, the slave trade. Uh, one of his friends wrote this in, um, about him. This is a man by the name of William J. He says, His disinterested, self-denying, laborious, undeclining efforts in this cause of justice and humanity will call down the blessings of millions and ages yet to come will glory in his memory. Um, Wilberforce retired because of poor health from the parliament in 1826, but he was still involved as an advisor to see the passage of the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833, just days before he died. So the, in 1807, the act actually forbid the trading of slavery in the British Empire, um, and in 1833, slavery as a whole was completely abolished in, um, in Britain. This act made slavery illegal in all of the land. Um, interestingly enough, in 1807, when the Slave Trade Act was um, passed, um, it was just mere months before uh, John Newton passed, but he got to see that they had abolished the slave trade before he died. Um, but not only did Wilberforce um, work towards the abolition of slavery, but he also wanted to reform the ethics and the Christianity of the British nation. So he wrote a book which has like 50 words, uh, which is called A Practical View of the Prevailing Religious System of Professed Christians in the Higher and Middle Classes in This Country Contrasted with Real Christianity. We might could use that book today, um, and we probably could find it. Um, in this book, he hoped to stir the consciences of his readers to consider what is what it really meant to be a Christian and not just a cultural Christian. See, in the upper and middle classes, there was expect expectations of what they should do. 
as uh, believers or as Christians or as members of a church. And he hoped that they would not just do that. And he saw Christianity in the day as shallow and nominal. Or nominal and shallow. Doesn't matter, I guess. And most likely not truly Christian from his assessment. He was part of a group called the Clapham Sect, which was a group of evangelicals who met together in London to outline how they could put their Christian faith into practice in society. Um, Wilberforce was also referred to as the prime minister of a parliament of philanthropists. So he was kind of this leader of philanthropy, and it was his faith that propelled him to be that way. He was at one time active in the support of 69 philanthropic causes. He gave away one quarter of his annual income to the poor. He fought not only for the abolition of the slave trade. I mean, you would think that's all he was doing is presenting bills for that. But he also fought on behalf of chimney sweeps. That industry probably needed a lot of help at that time. Uh, single mothers, Sunday schools, orphans, and juvenile delinquents. Interesting, too, he opposed dueling. Um, he helped found a parachurch helped found parachurch groups like the Society for Bettering the Cause of the Poor, the Church Missionary Society, the British and Foreign Bible Society, and the Anti-Slavery Society. So very involved in many social acts. So what motivated him? This is, this is the meat of this. What motivated him to be so involved with philanthropic ventures? This is what he said um, in kind of the middle of his life. He said, if a principle of true religion, that's faith, that's Christianity, right? at that time true religion is Christianity, it's not religion like just being a religious person and following a bunch of laws. Uh, if a principle of true religion should gain ground, there is no estimating the effects on public morals and the consequent influence on our political welfare. He thought that Christian society had neglected the truths that had undergirded a true emphasis for changing society. Instead, they had exchanged the truth of Christianity for a set of ethical or moral behaviors. This is what he would say about that. Let's see. He says, the fatal habit of considering Christian morals as distinct from Christian doctrines insensibly gained strength in this time. Thus, the peculiar, that's the, the peculiar doctrines of Christianity, that's the theological basis for Christianity, went more and more out of sight. And as might naturally have been expected, the moral system itself began to wither away and decay, being robbed of that which should have supplied it with its life nutriment. So if we don't invest ourselves, we don't understand the doctrines and the truth of Scripture, but we're going to have an ethical or a moral life, if we don't emphasize the Scriptures that's undergirding that, it's going to fall away because that's the, that is the foundation. So he pled with the nominally... Christian England not to turn their eyes from the grand peculiarities, that's the doctrines of Christianity, but to keep these ever in view as the pregnant principles whence all the rest must derive their origin and receive their best support. Um, so it was, he wanted them, wanted the people of the time to emphasize the truths and the, script, the doctrines of true Christianity. Um, one word that we can use to describe Wilberforce, which I've um, alluded to, is endurance. So why did he endure? Um, I've got some notes here by, um, let's see. Let's see. This is a, 
This is a message that John Piper did. I pulled a couple quotes here from people he had researched. Um, he did a message on William Wilberforce and his impact on society. Um, and he would argue um, that Wilberforce was enduring because he was dedicated to God and dependent on him as a source of joy and work. Um, let's see. First, I've numbered my quotes a certain way, and I haven't found this one. E. Here we go. All right, so on his 41st birthday, he wrote in his journal in 1800, he says, this is what's probably undergirding him and sustaining him. He says, O oh Lord, purify my soul from all its stains. Warm my heart with the love of thee. Animate my sluggish nature and fix my inconstancy and volatility that I might, might, may not be weary in well-doing. So he's praying to the Lord that he would undergird him and give him the strength to endure. Um, and his endurance was rooted in joy. This is quotes about him. A poet of the time said about Wilberforce, I never saw any other man who seemed to enjoy such a perpetual serenity and sunshine of spirit. In conversing with him, you feel assured that there is no guile in him, that if ever there was a good man and a happy man on earth, he was one. He was one. So he's joyful to those that saw him. Um, and, but he lived a life that was very um, difficult. Uh, he had various uh, health issues that constantly plagued him. Another, another person said this about him. says, though shattered in constitution and feeble in body, he is as lively and animated as in the days of his youth. And then the impact that he probably had on others uh, of the middle class and the elite in the church or in the society at the time one of his friends wrote, I declare I think you are serving God by being yourself agreeable to worldly but well-disposed people who would never be attracted to religion by grave and severe divines, even if such fell in their way. So he was joyful, and it brought people to Christ, and his, he had an, an infectious uh, kindness and joy, I think, in his life that was influential to many. Um, let's see. And then I guess there's this idea that if you are rooted in doctrine, that you don't, you know, that you are real serious all the time and that you're uh, maybe not as uh, joyful as you should be, and especially during that day, there was probably people like that, um, the high churchy types. And uh, this is what he would say to those. He said, my grand objection to the relig religious system today still held by many who declare themselves orthodox churchmen is that it tends to render Christianity so much a system of prohibitions rather than of privilege and hopes, and thus the injunction to rejoice so strongly enforced in the New Testament is practically neglected, and religion is made to wear a forbidden and gloomy air and not one of peace and hope and joy. So his idea is, hey, this, we have a great hope here, and it's inspiring us to do great things for Christ. Um, I think I have one more quote for you as I get very quotey. Um, so in, in his book, though, his main burden is to show what true Christianity is. And he says, Let him then who would abound and grow in this Christian principle, principle be more conversant with the great doctrines of the gospel. If we would rejoice in Christ as triumphantly as the first Christians did, we must learn 
like them, to repose our entire trust in him and to adopt the language of the apostle. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ, who of God has made us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So his endurance was rooted in joy, and his, his efforts to change society was rooted in an understanding of what the scriptures taught. He was a man that loved truth, and it inspired and propelled him to do great things for God. Um, I think then we would conclude and agree that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking, and in Matthew 5, he says, um, 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think we can apply that directly to the life of William Wilberforce and see that his understanding of the truth impacted his uh, good works and that many since then have proclaimed the glories of God because of the works that God did through him. So I would, first thing I'm going to do when we get done with this is find the greatest biography I can find of William Wilberforce. I'm going to read it. That's my goal for the new year. Um, so I would recommend him to you as well. Anybody have any questions? Might have been able to do the Salvation Army a little bit, but let's not. Let's, let's be done. All right. Thank you guys for your attention. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for how you're working in each of our lives, Lord. Lord, we all admit, me especially, Lord, that we are a needy people and we're dependent upon you for your grace to sustain us, Lord. Lord, we uh, praise you for the life of William Wilberforce, Lord. We know that you uh, changed him radically. And then, Lord, you infused your grace in his life constantly um, so he could be used by you to impact the world and culture, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would see, look for opportunities as well in this holiday season, Lord, to impact others. Lord, I pray that our mindset would be um, to glorify you as we reach out to others. Lord, thank you for this day. pray that you would keep us safe through the rain and pray that you would bless us through uh, the rest of the day as we rest in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.